0: Hi, good afternoon, and welcome to CIO Leadership Live. I'm Mary Fran Johnson, the Executive Director of CIO Programs, and I will be the hostess today for a very lively and entertaining conversation with Clara Yelenkova, who is the Vice President and CIO at Rice University in the heart of Houston. Clara joined the university in 2015 as its first ever Chief Information Officer, so we'll have lots of interesting things to talk about around how you establish a new CIO role at a university the size of Rice. She's a key member of the President's Cabinet and as such oversees all of the technology investments and strategy at Rice, which is a private, independent university of more than 7,000 students. Before she came to Rice, Clara spent five years at the University of Chicago as the senior associate vice president and a chief information technology officer. And then before that, she held a dual role in Duke University's Office of Information Technology, where she was the interim chief information security officer and the assistant VP of shared services and infrastructure. So Clara, welcome. It's delightful to have you here today.
1: Thank you for, for having me, Mary Fran. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be able to do this
0: interview. Yes, me too. We Every time I've talked to you, I've learned so many great things, and we've always had great conversations. Yes. So I want to dive right in and talk about what it's like to come into a university and be the first ever CIO.
1: You know, it's really interesting uh, because usually when you come uh, as a new CIO, you're reacting to someone, right? There was somebody already in the role and you're Mm -hmm. coming in and reacting. So I was really intrigued by the idea of being able to just create a position essentially from scratch. right? Uh Um, And I I saw that opportunity. as a huge benefit, and one of the things that I did not fully appreciate is that when you are bringing multi, you know, organization together from multiple pieces, because yeah. we had different parts of the organizations that uh, organization that were reporting to different people, different vice presidents, the approvals, etc. Sure, et cetera, scattered, that mm-hmm. scattered. Mm-hmm. That you are really essentially consolidating something that is more similar to shadow IT, right? So there are oh. certain pieces that CIOs over the last 15-20 years have built out that mm-hmm. we did not necessarily have. Yeah. So Let me give you a few examples. We did not have a project management office. We had to build that out over the last three years so we can uh, implement core systems. Yes. We did not have identity and access management group that was centralized. We, we mm-hmm. established that as well integration practices that were historically more tied to individual systems. How do you have an integration platform and integration strategy so you can be a nimble IT partner to our units. Mm -hmm. So those are the types of things that you know, you, you get to set the stage for your own role, but there's really a lot of heavy lifting that we as CIOs have been doing over the last yes. you know 10 to 15 years that you get to do in a three-year time frame. <laughs>
0: yes. Well, and before you got there, the President's Council, they spent a good year, 18 months, sort of studying up and figuring out what they wanted in a CIO. That's right. So Rice
1: did uh, a self-study that was actually ran by our vice president for administration and faculty and dean's feedback to kind of try to think about, you know, what did what what did Rice want to do in 2014 and how to position Rice for new future, which is technology enabled. I mean, we are facing this today where there is a real need for a cohesive technology strategy across all enterprises, including higher education. Of
0: course, yes, and we'll talk a lot more about that. But I wanted to just go back to kind of your early days. And once you had set up a central IT organization and then you established some governance, what were the sort of things that came next? What were the most challenging areas that maybe things you didn't expect to encounter?
1: So I think let me start with the positive, because Mm -hmm. one of the wonderful things about starting this job was coming in as, you know, if you will, a CIO uh, to a senior cabinet. It was a new role. And I was amazed how my colleagues. Fellow vice presidents, the provost have been really ready to engage. And so we have just announced our uh, vision for the second century, second decade, which mm-hmm. is our new strategic plan. And it was it's amazing to see how, with the role of a CIO at the at the cabinet level, mm-hmm. people are talking about what can technology enable? How are things different today given the changing technology landscape? So one of the wonderful things have been there has there have not been preconceived notions so you really got to function in a partnership mode and answer questions without people necessarily having historical kind of you know things have been this way for right. the last 20 years so yeah. i think I think driving innovation was actually, is actually easier uh, Mm -hmm. when you are, when you are new. Mm -hmm. Uh, The unexpected things is, you know, I mentioned it already. It's the heavy lift. You don't, you don't have anyone that was before you kind of doing this heavy lift uh, of integration, identity management, centralized security, project management office. And so that's, You get to do it all over again. The great thing is that you know a thing or two about it, so Mm -hmm. uh, you can do it faster and more easily.
0: Right. Well, and I know one of the things that you created there was a chief information security officer role. So you uh, brought a a CISO role in there, and also you created groups that were doing um, business intelligence and data warehousing, uh, and all of these were things that the university didn't have. So th- that's a lot of change management that you're talking about, and often when I interview CIOs, we spend a lot of time talking about how the soft the soft skills part is really the hard part for a lot of chief executives. Um, all the change management around that how did how did you handle that, and how has that kind of changed over time?
1: You know, it's really interesting because you kind of have two aspects of change management going on at once, right? You're internally changing an organization, so you have kind of this internal change management, including an HR strategy, right? Mm -hmm. You really need to think about talent, talent development, talent management. And then you have change management at the external level, right? Because all of a sudden you're creating something New that did not exist and people need to be able to connect with it right so you need to tell people externally now let's say that we have a data warehouse and business intelligence unit what does that mean for them Mm -hmm. right and how does it work with the office of institutional research how do we enable people yeah. and you end up telling a lot of stories actually oh. a lot of you know making mm-hmm. making sure that people can relate right yes to the change that you're making because as exciting as we all may think that you know Hadoop is it doesn't really mean much in business right so no that, no yeah. you, so sp- you have to, you have to really make it much more accessible yeah uh, the, one one way that we have been or I have been very much helped um, uh, at, at RISE is is because Rice has an IT committee of the board of trustees. So most universities have a you know a board of trustees, which is very similar to a corporate board, yes. and that has subcommittees or committees. And Rice has an IT committee, and the IT committee was key in bringing me on board and hiring me. But it also it really shows kind of how the board is involved and re- understands the technology implications mm-hmm. uh, that. Uh, exist even for higher education. And so in that way, having, uh, being able to engage with the board at a strategic level around these issues uh, has been extremely helpful. Yes. So, but, you know, so that's kind of the external piece. Mm -hmm. Uh, On the internal piece, uh, the change management is very hard. And I'm sure that, uh, and I have heard other CIOs on your program talk about this because it's, War for talent out there. In mm-hmm. some ways, we have been a little bit fortunate in Houston because of the downturn of the oil industry, mm-hmm. but in the same time, you know, Houston is booming economy. And so, yes. how do you how do you become a place where people want to work, and where there's a there's a compelling story of an IT organization within the larger university mm-hmm. that you know will make people say, "Hey, I really want to be at Rice. This is where I want to make my mark as an information technology professional."
0: Yeah. Well, let's explore that a little further. Um, how? What is your talent acquisition strategy? Because you might think that someone working at a university just has their pick of the best graduate students in the computer science department uh, but it's probably not nearly that easy you know I wish
1: right? <laughs> you know, and and the reason is because remember when you are at top 15 University in the United States
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, you're competing with Google and and Apple and everybody yeah. uh, for the same graduates because they come here and recruit right so one of the strategies that uh, I have employed is actually not trying to Um, hire graduate students after they graduate Mm -hmm. but have them work in the IT organization either permanently during their time at Rice Mm -hmm. or uh, during the summer as a summer internship and so you're getting uh, kind of the insights of the new generation Mm -hmm. um, and you know even though we cannot we may, we may not be able to compete with Google, right? I right. mean, I think a lot of CIOs are facing that. We can still have the benefit of those students uh, during the time that they are here. Mm-hmm. So we have a, a program which we call... Uh, technology ambassadors. So, you know, Mm -hmm. Rice is very residential, 99% of our undergraduate freshmen live on campus and in colleges and what we call colleges. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we have one in every single college that is our ears to the ground and what's going on and informing what we need to be doing
2: uh,
1: and giving us ideas. And then in the summer, we have graduate student internships Mm -hmm. in which students uh, help us design applications that students use.
0: Okay. Well, and outside and beyond the students that you have, what are some of the kind of leading edge projects? What are the things that would attract other IT professionals to come to Rice?
1: You know, so, you know, I think one of the, um, you know, we talk a lot about disruption, right? Technology Mm -hmm. disruption. And every single industry is facing it in some way or another, right? Some sort of a technology disruption in the industry. Um, And it can be frightening and scary. uh, And I think in higher education, there is a, a very compelling piece to it, which is, as People are facing as people graduate, and they are facing multiple job changes throughout their career. Mm-hmm. Universities and Rice is one of the universities are really rethinking about how do we have lifelong engagement with students, not just Rice students, but you know mm-hmm. other uh, other alumni from other institutions, and help people retool their careers, right? So you okay. you know we have courses on Coursera on mm-hmm. uh, Python programming, and you know so because. One of the opportunities that people have when they work for a university is actually to have an impact on the future of the United States and the future of the world, Mm -hmm. right? And helping people and thinking about how technology can be used to help people reshape their careers in mid-career, mid-career later in their career. You know, how can somebody who is 37 years old or 45 years old Mm -hmm. that wants to, you know, move from being a clerk in a financial institution to being a business analyst in a financial institution, how can they get a certificate, how they can get a graduate certificate while still working, being online and Mm -hmm. uh, really changing their lives. And that's a great place to be, right?
0: Yes. Yes. Well, and I was thinking about that, too. A lot of times when I talk with other CIOs, Uh, We tend to refer to various business units, and they're the ones that in private industry everybody knows. You know, there's the accounting department, there's HR. Uh, Universities are a little different in that you have different colleges and areas that are essentially your business units. Uh, So explain just a little bit about how how you view that. What is the structure of, like, who are your business unit leaders that you spend most of your time, you know, dealing with and talking with?
1: Yeah, and I would just say we still have the same business units that others do, right? We mm-hmm. still happen to have an accounting department. Well, of course, yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. and an HR department, yeah, exactly. So you know, so, mm-hmm. so we have the normal, uh, the normal business units, but then uh, you know we have various schools, you know, engineering, mm-hmm. natural sciences, social sciences, you know, that they're domain specific as well as what we would call more. Uh, professional schools such as business school and architecture and music that right. that kind of provide very more specialized training yes um and so the way that we engage with them rice is actually very centralized from an end user support perspective so we have mm-hmm. i.t staff in all of the schools that provide the staff support and one of the transformational pieces that we have been working on is how do we use those staff members to give us information about what is going on in the schools okay. and how do we provide how they give us intelligence on how centralized services need to change and how they need to evolve mm-hmm. and so that the engagement is at kind of my level is meeting with the deans and hearing about what they are trying to do and aligning the it strategy with the school strategies, okay. but also at the kind of ground level, do we really understand what is uh, the customer journey, if you will, mm-hmm. right? What is the day in life for a faculty member? What is a daily in life for a student, for a departmental mm-hmm. administrator? And do we have opportunities to actually make them better? And so we like, for example, for the daily, day in life and faculty member, we have a dedicated unit for teaching and learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have people that are dedicated to making sure that the classroom function as well as possible. Yeah. And there's a lot of technology in classrooms today. Mm-hmm. And so when a faculty member walks in, that podium works. And we have people that if any any issue arises, we monitor them. Uh, we make sure that they're monitored so we know that everything is working. And if something right. is not working, we dispatch people immediately. because. Yeah. But then you know at a school period within a class period the faculty member needs to be productive that
0: entire time right and that's the time they have the students and they exactly. can, they can lose them god if people didn't have wireless access they would get up and leave <laughs>
1: But well, hopefully not. <laughs> yeah, hopefully
0: not. No, not that that would happen. No, you know uh, that's uh, tell me what is the size of the IT organization that you're running? What is kind of the size and scope of these people that are that are fanning out through all the colleges and taking care of IT throughout the university?
1: So you know, so again, Rice is very kind of is a very small and exclusive institution, right? So mm-hmm. we have, as you mentioned, we have 7,500 students. We have uh, 600 faculty. Um, about 2,000 staff out of the 2,000 staff, about 160 of them are in the central IT organization okay And so that's um, we need to be very efficient with what we do mm-hmm. um, and you know we, and very nimble and agile yeah and that's partially why we rely on if you will student employees and and kind of distribute in some ways, distributed IT uh, that may exist in some of the units to help us and kind of bring them into one IT family.
0: Right. Well, and uh, uh, that leads me to a conversation we had previously about um, shadow IT. Uh, You would think that you mentioned it in a very favorable light uh, a few minutes ago uh, because you don't see shadow IT as a bad thing. You see it more as departmental IT leaders that you can bring into this IT family. Talk a little bit more about that. Has this always been your view at the other universities you worked at or is this more exclusive to Rice?
1: Well, you know, universities are fairly decentralized, right? And so I think if you are a CIO, you need to make a decision on what are the things where you can leverage scale that you can centralize and actually drive economies of scale. And what are the things that are too specialized that are difficult to actually really administer and manage centrally? And they're more aligned with a unit function, Mm -hmm. and so once you have those, if you kind of identify one of those, then you need to figure out how you're going to bring those people in so they're part of the IT family, they understand how we do integration, how we do identity management, how do we manage tickets, you know, Mm -hmm. how do we do IT service management, but they can serve their unit in a more, Kind of specialized way while adhering to a certain set of principles. Mm-hmm. So I sometimes joke that it's you know you you kind of you, you need to set standards and then once people adhere to the standards, you can actually give them levels of freedom uh, to function in a way that makes sense for
0: their unit. Which is really where innovation happens, isn't
1: it? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And and so and I'll give you a, I'll give you an example. So we just got an NSF grant with uh, University of Utah to do next generation programmable wireless. Ah. Um, and it's a faculty driven effort. We have faculty that have been working on it for a number of years. It's a mm-hmm. major, uh, major NSF award that's going to over time change how wireless is done. Wow. They have that. So we are supporting them. We actually uh, have provided staff to them to, to help with. Um, Information about how we manage our wireless and kind of inform their design, mm-hmm. but they still have software engineers that are working on this cutting-edge technology. Mm-hmm. And so, how you know, how do we all kind of play in the same sandbox? It's uh, mm-hmm. it actually can be very rewarding even for the IT staff because they get yeah. to work on some next-generation items that. Otherwise, they wouldn't see because they are not quite market ready, right? So they right. it keeps their, their skills fresh.
0: Yeah. Do you also, do you end up working with startup companies or VCs in the Houston area? I know that there's a pretty thriving market uh, around Houston. And I, I wonder, it seems like a university would be a natural place where they might congregate or even come from.
1: I I could not have scripted you more. So we just announced (laughs) with the mayor uh, an innovation district in Midtown Houston where all of the universities and the city are collaborating to create an innovation district. Uh, It happens that Rice had a a really well-positioned property that is kind of halfway between the Texas Medical Center and downtown Houston. Mm -hmm. And it's really proximal to not just... uh, Rice University, but the other universities in, in, in Houston. Uh, and so we are trying to just kind of centralize and create that. Mm-hmm. So um, so yes, there's a there's a there's an active collaboration. And it's not just, you know, I think it's really important to think about the fact that it's not just one university driving it, because when you are part of a major city, and Boston is the same way, quite frankly, where you yeah. are, yeah. where it's not one university driving it which you might have in a smaller town it is the power of the university the industry and the city coming together and creating an innovation ecosystem
0: wow how far along is it now you said it's been announced so you're in the very early stages of it very early yeah yeah it was today (laughs) literally today okay well that's great all right well we're right on top of the news Which actually, and I was thinking of you too, I'm jumping ahead in my own script a little bit, but I I couldn't help but think about you as I've been reading the stories about uh, Mark Zuckerberg and his testimony before Congress about Facebook and privacy and identity access, because that's been a real specialty area for you in all of your other jobs. And I know I've read some pieces that you've written about it. So let's talk about that a little bit, the role that CIOs do play and should play in identity access management and privacy. Uh, So I'll start out by asking you, what have you thought about his testimony so far?
1: You know, it's really interesting because Mm -hmm. we are living in a world where the technology and the complexity of the technology is really outpacing the societal um,
0: Mm -hmm. ways,
1: understanding and and, and ways to grapple with it, right? And so you see... uh, governments such as EU with uh, the global data protection, right, that Mm -hmm. that are coming in and trying to set some sort of a standard. I think, um, and I I think when people think back to this time uh, of this, of of the testimony, they will realize that this was a really early period of us understanding privacy of information, right? Mm -hmm. And we are still trying to figure out what is the right balance, you know, What are the institutional interests, the individual interests, the governmental interests, and where do they all meet? And in some ways, in kind of the physical space, we have negotiated it over hundreds of years, right? right? And now we are trying to negotiate it within a span of what, five years?
0: Yes, yes. So it's
1: complicated, very, very complicated. Well, and
0: I can remember the the big uproar back in the 90s when uh, Scott McNeely, who was the CEO at Sun Microsystems, said, uh, You have, it was essentially uh, privacy is over, get over it, you know? And, and this was way before privacy was nearly as over as it is now. Um, I was reading an article in the New York Times today where one of the journalists went in and downloaded a tool that allowed him to look at everything Facebook had on him. And he was not even a regular user. He called himself kind of a lurker. He just went in occasionally. He rarely posted. And he was all kinds of shocked about All the information they had on the advertisers that he had, we just don't realize we're clicking on so many things when we're online. He was particularly shocked that uh, Facebook Messenger had his entire iPhone address book. And, you know, I just I'm not and I read stuff like that. And I'm not sure if people should be as shocked because we are so probably unwittingly giving away that stuff when we agree, you know, so and so would like to connect. And will you allow it? And you just click allow and you keep going.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I I think, you know, one way to think about it is that, you know, this is all very new. Right. And so, you know, I. On one hand, you can say, "Well, people should know better, right?" On the other hand, you can say, "Well, this is really an emerging area, mm-hmm. right?" And I think we all need to kind of think through how much public information are we willing to have out there about ourselves. Yes. And so when you when you like when you go back, just imagine going back two hundred years when we were all living mm-hmm. in some sort of a village, right? Mm-hmm. Now, let's go like fifteen hundreds, fifteen hundreds Europe, right? You had yeah. you had a little village people lived inside of the village they rarely mm-hmm. ventured out and they knew absolutely everything about each other mm-hmm. right that's right technology makes all of the sudden this possible at an extreme scale yes. right yeah and so we need to think about well how how much how much do we really want to be known how much do we want to be unknown and the concept of privacy has evolved in the even in the united states yeah. it's a fairly recent concept right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so it's you know how you know where exactly do we stand as individuals um and as a society is is, is, a, is a question mm-hmm. we will need to think through
0: yeah now are there enough, i feel like i'm skating in a uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> In a difficult area. In a dangerous area. Well, I don't want you to feel unsteady on your skates. um, But you've had, you know, you have written about this enough. So you've given a lot of thought to identity access and privacy management. How is that translating into what you're doing at Rice? What are the sort of, uh, you know, the policies that you've set or the choices that you've given people? How are you setting it up at the university?
1: Yeah. And I would just say, you know, I, I was writing about this before it became a hot topic. So this is kind of very, you know, it's kind of funny, that so <laughs> these, you know, I wrote this article that said, I think identity and privacy is the next frontier yes. for the CIO. So, yes. and, and, you know, that well, you, was like, you know, a year ago, but you were right. Ago. You were right. Um, yeah. But, um, mm-hmm. so, so I think, um, important thing to kind of realize about universities is that we are communities, right? So, yeah. it, in, in, in a way, we are a little bit different than, than corporations that kind of think about a hierarchical structure. Mm-hmm. We don't really think about ourselves that way. So, yeah. yes, it is true that, you know, we have administration and, you know, employees but actually a bigger part of our community are our students are the people that engage with us, our alumni, and they're not really under our control in the same way that an employee is. Right. Mm-hmm. So we don't get to make decisions for them.
2: Right.
1: And so we need to, and we are very heavily regulated, uh, on the, even on the privacy side with, uh, students with FERPA, with the, you know, uh, federal protections, uh, for students from mm-hmm. uh, student mm-hmm. privacy. Um, and so, um, but at the same time, we are trying to balance this need for collaboration. So universities yes. collaborate at a very large scale. Uh, mm-hmm. And I don't know if you know, but we run our own identity federation called In Common that allows us to kind of get a- give access to resources across universities mm-hmm. to each other, connect to you know global instruments, uh, mm-hmm. have those available. And so how do we... Create this trust fabric that allows us to collaborate without really threatening, you know, uh, people's privacy has been has, has been kind of on the forefront of our mind. So what we what we do is we run uh, you know federated identity that actually uses Shibboleth, which is an open source software that we have been developing for a number of years, mm-hmm. and in common federation so that allows us to kind of connect to each other but have this trusted framework for doing it Uh Um, we are also now moving more toward and early stages toward giving people control more and more control over how much information they release about themselves Uh and how that information and mm-hmm. so that's um, you know usually comes into into play with th- things like uh, CRMs uh, for our community engagement and how do we think about it and how do we give people control mm-hmm. over information that they are receiving from us and I think in that way we are probably pretty pretty, pretty similar pretty similar. To-
0: mm-hmm. Well, and that uh, that also seems uh, that it's more on maybe the leading edge or the you know where privacy is going where there is um, just a, a, a greater feeling on the part of the users that they want more control. And they may end up finding the control a little tedious. You know, all the things you have to check into. You know, when I was I was reading the article from the New York Times guy and, you know, like the stuff that he had downloaded and all the things that he had looked at, and I thought it sounded like an awful lot of work to find out, you know, exactly what Facebook had on you and then to end up all worried about it. I mean, it just, I and it made for a great article. It was interesting, but as I was reading it, I was thinking that I probably wouldn't, be that i wouldn't be that uh, i don't know into it i guess to go and 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 drag all that out
1: Mm. yeah and i think you know as cios what we need to think about is are we giving people the right options so if someone wants to do it can they do it? Mm -hmm. it it's it's not necessarily about you know Making people, you know, privacy hawks or mm-hmm. something like that, because it's entirely possible that some people are so comfortable with their public lives or private lives even yes. that they don't really care about more more people knowing about it, and they're mm-hmm. willing, you know. So every single individual is going to make informed decisions on in this space, and so I think CIOs should not actually worry about is it, you know, do people want all of these choices as long as those choices actually remain available okay. right are are made available to the people who want them yeah. and uh, to be honest with you that's the approach that facebook google others have taken mm-hmm. because it's it's the fact that not everybody wants to do it does not mean that it's not needed. That right? some people
0: don't want to do it. Exactly. 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 Well, and that leads me into the, the whole emergence of government regulation coming in to protect and regulate, you know, individual access to privacy uh, is what has brought about that GDPR, which, uh, and, and so that's an example, that whole right to be forgotten. Uh, the um, And since... Rice University is international, and you have what I think you said, 27 percent of your student body um, are international students. How much work has that been for you to get ready for that? I think it launches next month. In terms of yeah, the exactly. regulations are in, in place, was uh, how much of an effort was that?
1: You know, so this is a really interesting. Um, this is an interesting question because on mm-hmm. one hand, you can say yes. There was effort involved. Sure. Right? It's, uh, no doubt about it. Yeah. Uh, but on the other hand, it has allowed us to engage with people and business owners and stakeholders in a new way to say to talk to them about Super. how they are managing their data, what are their business processes, what what are the controls that they have over their data, and how does the different how do the different pieces of data that we have about people connect with each other? So we actually, even though it was work, don't take me wrong, <laughs> um, uh, we actually saw it as really enabling uh, data security because it has given us a vehicle to talk about data security in a very different way Mm -hmm. in in kind of how do we enable privacy and say, hey, this is a regulation that is coming. We really need to get our arms around it. And we were no longer kind of the security big stick, right? It was more about helping people understand and and working with them. And so for us, even though it Again, I'm not saying that it was not work. We really viewed it as uh, very enabling, actually, and a new way to engage with the business around certain concepts that can be a little bit hard to explain Mm -hmm. sometimes.
0: Well, that's a a great observation because it essentially made it personal. It made people more interested in it because it was actually going to affect them personally. Yeah, it wasn't right. being you know it wasn't being forced to watch another security video and pass your because uh, when I have uh, we have conversations at our CIO events where I get CIOs and CSOs on a panel and we talk about building resiliency into the organization and where the threats come from and all that kind of stuff and over and over the big threat tends to be the employees themselves kind of unwittingly doing things that will expose their intellectual property. Um, we had one of our when we did our Dallas panel one of your colleagues, Mark Stone from Texas A&M, talked about how professors who travel internationally and go to conferences to share their research don't realize what a risk they may be putting the university at. So it's kind of an, it's sort of an uphill climb to make sure you're educating all your different constituents on it. Yeah, you know, and, the,
1: the, and this is kind of, you know, you, you touched on it um, in the New York Times article around privacy, right? Mm-hmm. But actually security has even bigger issue, which is in order to secure information, that's a lot of work on an individual's side, right? And so every single business is trying to stride, you know, how do you have a mobile workforce that can work from anywhere? And in the same time, how do you secure that workforce? And what are the new pieces of information security approaches and technology that you need to put in place? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think all of us have read kind of the beyond corp work that Google has put forward, which is a very kind of innovative idea talking about you're no longer kind of this, you know, walled garden of an enterprise with the, uh, you know, secure you know, secure inside and bad outside. Yeah, it's it's, you know, networks are zero trust networks nowadays. Mm-hmm. And I think in some ways, universities have been on the forefront of this for a while because we have been open enterprises for a long time. We have people, yes. you know, coming on campus every day to hear a concert, to, you know, go to a football game, to mm-hmm. watch a performance. Mm-hmm. And all of those people get in our wireless network. So how do we kind of have this zero trust concept? Um, and and you know, so we can remain open and, and enable the community that we support, which is which goes much beyond just employee yeah. community. Yeah.
0: Well and I think a lot of CIOs and IT leaders have given up on the notion that there's ever going to be a silver bullet product, that like something is going to come from a security vendor and you put this into place in your enterprise and you're all set. You know, you got no more problems anymore. Everybody pretty much that itself is a very shifting landscape. You know, uh, several years ago, everybody talked about firewalls and then it was pen testing. And, you know, there's just but you've actually been a CSO, that role in the past. And one of the things you said about being a CSO was that you thought it was wonderful preparation for becoming a CIO. Talk a little bit about that. What is it about the chief security officer role that helped you become the CIO you are today? You
1: know, so, you know, one of the things that, and I hope my CISO colleagues would agree, Mm -hmm. is that you have a very broad responsibility but limited level of control right <laughs> and I think in that way it's yeah. similar to CIO roles mm-hmm. where you need to really exercise a lot of influence mm-hmm. um, and you need to be able to communicate pretty complicated concepts at a business level and you have to make trade-offs that are based on and in security it's how much risk You know, how much innovation, I mean, how much innovation do you want to drive and how much risk you are willing to accept in order to achieve those goals, Mm -hmm. right? That's one of the key questions that every CISO is trying to answer is, yeah, I can secure the enterprise, but then the enterprise is
0: just, down.
1: Yeah, it's locked down, right? And then it's like, it's not going to be a vibrant, vibrant community or something to be vibrant enterprise. So, you know, how, how much risk am I willing to take in this, in this scenario and how do I engage the board? Mm-hmm. about the discussion of that risk,
2: yeah. right? Yep. And so
1: I think in that way, teaching you how to think that, how to think about this kind of the business alignment risk strategy, mm-hmm. I think in that way, uh, the CISO role is very similar to the CIO role.
0: Excellent. Well, and I was uh, I was thinking, too, when you talked about um, the IT committee, the subcommittee of the board of trustees, I was just, I I wondered what is, what are the agendas like for that? What sort of things are on the list of topics that they want to talk about? And and who are the other? You know, like what are some of the other functions on that that committee with you?
1: Yeah. So uh, so, so so the committee. The so the the, the 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 people who are on the IT committee. Yes. Um, you know, finance administration. Right. All of the people that are. You know. Kind of users or or, or you know, partners in the delivery, right? Okay. Or in the delivery of the uh, of the business outcomes that the technology enables, yeah. right? Um, so the the topics, as you can imagine, security is actually a standing topic on our yeah. agenda, right? So yeah. that you know, because it's it's that's just a really big piece of every CIO's role. Mm-hmm. Um, the other topics we you know we uh, we discuss. Um, Support for teaching and learning digital education, you know, mm-hmm. how do we kind of enable that transformation that is happening in, in higher education, uh, support for research. Um, mm-hmm. So we have, you know, every university is a major research enterprise. A lot of research is computational. We actually have a center mm-hmm. for research computing that is a group um in uh, IT organ in the IT organization that is uh, that we uh, run in collaboration with the Ken Kennedy Institute for information technology which is faculty led mm-hmm. and how do we bring technology resources to bear to help faculty solve is- problems you know so yep. those are computational resources high performance computing those mm-hmm. types of things that we run centrally uh, storage resources to, You know save their research publish their research etc and then the third is um uh i would say administrative computing right business transformation and even though it's not you know that's not the most exciting thing uh (laughs) it's required right how how are you rethinking your processes especially as we are moving to You know cloud-based erps Mm -hmm. right and 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 kind of even to the kind of the post erp world where we are Mm -hmm. integrating you know how are we managing business processes across multiple applications and still enabling the enterprise
0: right well and one of the things that uh, we had talked about previously you'd mentioned is that how IT has to support both traditional and digital education and how much that balance between the two is likely to shift in the future. Uh, Tell me a little bit about how your staff is organized to kind of deal with both of those worlds.
1: Yeah, so so again, we have one one unit uh that is teaching and learning and we do we really support teaching and learning technology or learning environments and so in in some ways whether or not um we are working with a school um on you know within a classroom or within a virtual classroom uh really doesn't make any difference Mm -hmm. uh we are very closely collaborating with, uh, you know, a uh, a faculty-led unit uh, dealing with digital education and really kind of the MOOC space as well, Mm -hmm. uh, and how do we help them and enable them. But it really is more about, um, for us, um, how do we understand the curricular needs of the faculty and then making sure that the technology is there to deliver it however they wish to deliver it.
0: Okay. Okay. Interesting. Well, in the um, one of the other things we talked about, and this kind of falls under the bigger umbrella of leadership, that larger issue about the CIO role itself and how just in your career, it has really shifted from being a service provider to much more of a business partner. And I know when you when you got to Rice, that was kind of a delightful part of the discussion is that you were talking as a fellow business leader to all the other leaders of the different parts of the university. Um, So I wanted to just sort of center in on how you've used that role as a partner to, for instance, drive innovation efforts out of the IT group.
1: Yeah. So, you know, and I, and I talked about it a little bit, right, which is yeah. um, how do we partner with faculty and enable their research and then see, you know, what are the pieces that we can bring to kind of enable that, enable that research. Right. Mm-hmm. So. Um, so that's, you know, kind of for us, remember that we can tap into not just phenomenal students, but also incredible faculty. And we have computer science and we have engineering and these faculty are just doing amazing things that are going to shape uh, the future of technology. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so for us, it's more, you know, how do we work with them and try to figure out what things are actually applicable to the enterprise today? Okay. Right.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So on the on the on kind of the the leadership um level is um, I think it's, it's really important businesses go through strategic planning, universities go st- through strategic planning, is mm-hmm. to have the CIO at the table to think about if these are the outcomes that we are trying to achieve. So for us, we just roll out the uh, vision for the second century, second decade that has undergraduate education, graduate mm-hmm. education, growing faculty, improving research. Uh, being digital and global uh, and increasing mm-hmm. our footprint through, you know, digital and global endeavors and then supporting Houston, which is, you know, fourth, soon to be third largest city in the United States and how do we kind of work with Houston about mm-hmm. a set of issues that we have uh, as, a, as a city that right. you have all probably learned about last fall mm-hmm. uh, when oh we had a gosh, yeah. small hurricane sitting over us, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so... Not uh, so small. So sometimes- <laughs> <Yes>. Yeah, <laughs> Um, And so the hurricane was an example where the IT organization was able to come in and actually partner with the university on developing some innovative technologies that had to do with response to a disaster. Right. So, you know, right. So so what happened was we had as the hurricane was coming in because we are largely residential. You know, businesses can kind of shut down. The university doesn't get to shut down because mm. we have students. We yeah. uh, and you know, we we, we are twenty four by seven, three sixty five operation. Yeah, and so um, That's a good point. <laughs> we were we were working with uh, the provost office, uh, the the other offices across the university to actually develop different uh apps and, and analyses that allowed us to find out where people were at were their houses under threat you know mm-hmm. were they able to get to work you know what were the impacts that they had and then that 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 the hurricane presented and I remember that situation was constantly shifting right so mm-hmm. somebody could be under threat of for of, ev- of evacuation one day and not the next and you know this was continuously changing so how do you kind of have an idea and really good uh read on what is the entire extended community going through what are the services that we need to provide for our students but also for our staff for our faculty Um, Mm -hmm. and how how do we shape those based on the data that we were able to obtain from our community, analyze, and then, you know, yeah. give, let's say, HR or give to the provost office to, mm-hmm. to know what to do next?
0: Okay. Well, and that reminds me, too, to ask you about data analytics, because that's something I know that's always in the top five issues for most CIOs. What sort of an approach... Uh, have you taken? What kind of things are you innovating around uh, to make that data-driven organization happen? Because it's the data is always so tightly involved with whatever innovations are in the pipeline. There's almost always a data layer and some analytics involved. So what sort of things do you have going on in that realm?
1: Yeah, you know, so it was it was really interesting Uh coming in three years ago because we actually had to do a fairly heavy lift uh, around a data warehousing initiative. And, and, and one of the pieces that was really critical uh, was since we didn't have a data warehouse before, mm-hmm. Uh, The the really important piece about building one of those things is uh, having common data definitions and common understanding of data, right? So we we kind of brought in a group together that we call the data stewards that can really have a conversation around different data elements, Mm -hmm. what they mean, how they should be shared. And by the way, when you know, GDPR came in, that was the same group that we could utilize to kind of take that conversation to the next level, to the privacy level around oh, the data, right? Okay. So that, uh-huh. you know, that, you know, kind of creating that, creating that community. So from from that perspective, um, we are we basically have a, a set of, you know, data sets and analysis ready data sets that we make available primarily to the Office of Institutional Research
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: that uh, provides reports and other things uh, that uh, are, are discussed. Uh, but we also kind of subscribe as just as everybody else to benchmarking services. And, you know, the question then, you know, mm-hmm. the issue mm-hmm. that we have trying to work through is, you know, how do you take your internal data that you have generated and, and kind of compare it or match it with the benchmarking data that we have? And how does that then inform the future of your programs, et cetera?
0: Interesting, interesting. The, um, well, and, and you brought up at one point mentioning the global aspects of a lot of this. You've recently expanded your role or your role has been expanded for you to include rice and in, in the international scene. Uh, talk about what that brings to your CIO role. What are these new duties that you've taken on?
1: Well, you know, so I think, you know, CIOs are enabling international initiatives everywhere, right? Yeah. Because, you know, fundamentally, you uh, the, the world beyond borders is the digital world, yeah, right? And so, you know, you, the, the second you, you know, the second we started to put up web pages, we started to kind of break through the barriers of, you know, space, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and limitations of where we were physically. Yeah. So, um, you know, when I was at University of Chicago, University of Chicago uh, had centers, uh, so we actually, you know, built a center in Beijing, Hong Kong, uh, New Delhi. Um, and when we were thinking about this uh, strategy at, at Rice, you know, the truth is that when, when you are doing it several years later, it's always amazing how when you do something, ask the same similar question, set of questions a mm-hmm. uh, few years later, your answer might actually change. Is so the question has become how do we use technology to actually increase Rice's footprint um, mm-hmm. and, and impact? You know, because for us it's. It's really about impact, how, you know, impact of our research, uh, impact of our community. Yeah. And for that, technology plays a critical role. And, mm-hmm. and you know, so it's communication, it's um, uh, how do we form partnerships with other universities, how do we form partnerships with, mm-hmm. you know, places across the globe in order to really make uh, our community more vibrant.
0: Okay. So these... How does that change what you do on a week-to-week basis? What are some of the kind of new tasks that you now have to pay additional attention to?
1: You know, so, so one thing that has been really helpful has been engaging with faculty on what are the international research or scholarship components mm-hmm. uh, that they're trying to do, and are are there ways that technology can make it easier? Right. Okay. So having really that conversation in a in a much more structured way. Mm-hmm. So, for, you know, rather than saying these are the services that we provide, you know, really thinking about it from the end user perspective. And I actually think that's one of the things that CIOs can do that can be very empowering for CIOs is to take the point of view of the clients mm-hmm. and engage the business in a new view in a in a new way by. Um, essentially projecting what the clients want to the business right yes. and mapping those customer journeys so in that way mm-hmm. you know i think the that i i expect that the job is going to change in really kind of understanding what are the international aspirations that that Rice has, but also that our faculty have and how Mm -hmm. technology can make this easier.
0: Yeah. Well, that it reminds me of something I'm often telling CIOs when I talk with them that and it used to be something that uh, it was a um, kind of a a theme that marketing people owned, where they were always looking for uh, looking at new things. And it was always about how do you bring people something they never knew they always wanted? And in a lot of ways, you know, that idea about bringing to the board, bringing to the other business partners you work with, something that technology can enable that they didn't realize how much they wanted it once, you know, you got it underway. And I think that that is so much more... It is so much more relevant today to CIOs in their strategic roles than it is. I've, I've never liked the notion of CIOs aligning with business strategy, because to me that always implies that the strategy has already been set and the CIOs being informed about it. And then they get in line and they help it with enabling technologies. I like I'm much Prefer the the kind of approach where CIOs are accelerating the strategy of their businesses, whether it's a university or a healthcare center, by bringing these technologies to the table. You know, by by introducing their colleagues to things they never knew they always wanted.
1: You know, and I think that's a that's actually a great point because in some ways, um, it it was at one point in the in the in the past that kind of CIOs were very much technology leaders right mm-hmm. and it was we, we we kind of discussed things in, in fairly technical ways yep. well now you really see CIOs need to understand all aspects of the business whatever the relevant business mm-hmm. is and be able to do the translation from what is what the technology can do into how it can enable business mm-hmm. right exactly. and so it's a it's it's a So you need to really become pretty savvy on how different parts of the enterprise work Mm
0: -hmm. so you can
1: actually engage in that conversation. I think, you know, many, uh, if not all, CIOs are ready to do that because we have been watching these business processes in our systems forever, right? So we sometimes know them exceptionally well. And it's just really about having the opportunity to talk about how they can be shaped or changed through... Uh, or evolve as technology evolves
0: well it's making much better use of that helicopter view that we've talked about for years and years <laughs> about and I heard one cio described it he said it's one thing to get the seat at the table but the important thing to do is don't sit around too much once you've got that seat at the table he was like get out there and be out in front and understanding the customer journey and you know that it sounds like I know that you do that a lot at the university you get out meeting with a lot of uh, a lot of your colleagues. In fact, and that leads to my next topic as we're getting close to the top of the hour um, about leadership and time management. And I don't know whether you wrote this or whether you mentioned it to me, but you said you found Stephen Covey annoying yet effective. And that idea about the importance of evaluating where and how you're spending your time.
1: I know, you know, okay. and so I you know, I do this crazy thing where at least once a year I actually do the Covey exercise of kind okay. of how, how I'm spending my time. Yeah. And I I, I I, see it as an important reset of my own priorities, you know, okay. because I think, you know, as CIOs, we all, you, you know, there's a strategic piece and then there's the operational piece. And we all are running complicated, fairly large enterprises, mm-hmm. right, that have multiple components to them. And it's very easy to just kind of, you know, go in there, right? Yep. Go into this operational just piece and, and, and deal job. with the immediate yeah, yeah right. Mm-hmm. And so um, so I you know, I, I find that it's very helpful to actually go through this exercise of am I really spending enough time mm-hmm. enough of my own time and of my own kind of intellectual capacity, if you will in uh, engaging with what is the future and what is next, you know, mapping out mm-hmm. um, how we could help someone. and you know and you know one of the things that I, I, I learned uh, along the way is that you know it, what matters is that you propose an idea and you make the best possible proposal you can make Mm -hmm. and it's okay if people don't go with it right Right. as long as you have made the argument Mm -hmm. because you know people can you know the business can decide to do something slightly different or they, they they may decide to not do this just yet but what matters is that you spend the energy in kind of honing in an idea, proposing it, having mm-hmm. it debated. And ultimately, some of them will always make it, right? So it's yep. it's important that as a CIO, you're spending enough time proposing more things in some ways yeah. than, than you can actually achieve because some of them will not get funded. We all know that, right? right. These will not get funded. Mm-hmm. So you, you have to kind of sometimes a little bit divorce yourself from an emotional
0: attachment to your idea thank or your you. project. That is right. Mm-hmm. Thank yeah. you very much. Right. Mm-hmm.
1: Because otherwise it will stop you. It can actually stop you from thinking creatively because yeah. if you're worried too much about, you know, losing an argument, Mm -hmm. then you don't spend enough time refining it and honing it.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's it's funny. I've had some conversations just recently. I can't remember what we were working on, but I was talking with a lot of uh, female IT leaders and asking a lot of them what they wish they had done sooner in their careers. And almost always, the thing that everybody wishes they'd done was speak up more more often, more frequently, you know, like step forward and have the idea and get it out there. Um, and I know that's a topic close to your heart about uh, women in IT leadership, because unfortunately, we're still we're still kind of a minority. It's probably less than 10% of all CIOs are actually women CIOs. Do you have any advice or words of wisdom for uh, younger women who are in the IT profession now, things that uh, maybe thinking back you wish you'd done soon?
1: You know, so it's interesting. I mean, I think uh, senior women in IT actually have a responsibility for mentoring the next generation. And, you know, I I know all of us do some portion of this because it's very, very important. Uh, So I can relate a story. When I was in my 20s. Uh, we had a new CIO coming in at University of Wisconsin-Madison where I was working before I went to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so here I am, a kid in my, you know, that's 25, I think, or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, CIO, the CIO, Annie Stunden, who is, uh you know, retired since but was one of the really kind of uh, major CIOs in higher education, mm-hmm. uh, was giving a town hall, and I raised my hand as the first person to ask her a question, and I asked her a question. Mm-hmm. And she made a connection with me, and actually helped me throughout my career. Um, Wonderful. And I think it's, I think for women's for so for senior women CIOs being that mentor, and for women that are uh, earlier in their career finding those mentors and. Being willing to speak up and and
0: and ask for mentorship and and mm-hmm. being
1: open to mentorship is very important.
0: Yes. Well, and and I can't help but uh, bring up the person who got you into coding because it's so rare that I run into someone whose mom got them into IT. So tell us about that.
1: Yeah. So my mother is a visionary. Uh-huh. So, uh, <laughs> so 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 my mother was one of the people you know when you. Uh, watch hidden figures you know my mom yes. was you know is that is that generation right mm-hmm. and uh she has a phd in mathematics and and mm-hmm. she worked on you know computers back when you know they were you know punch cards and all of that mm-hmm. stuff, <laughs> yep. right yeah um and she was uh she was a program she was an analyst um and when i was uh when i was young when i was a kid uh, my mom said I had to learn to code, and so she. I hope. I hope mm-hmm. the statute of limitation has expired. But my mother actually yeah. smuggled yeah. an Atari computer from West Germany. This is, you know, so this is way back, right? Yeah. To to Czechoslovak Socialist Republic uh-huh. to, to get me a computer because back then computers yeah. were outlawed, obviously, in personal. Uh-huh. Uh, so she smuggled the computer for me and then I, I learned how to go and at home and she taught me. Isn't it? Isn't it amazing? Isn't that, it amazing to have a mother like that?
0: That is amazing. That is amazing. Well and it, it clearly has it, it clearly has paid off in the long run. So, you know, uh, all hail to mothers everywhere. <laughs> Who are are pushing their kids onto the forefront. Um, And I I know because one of my kids ended up working at Google and uh, used to do a whole lot of uh, video game playing when he was in high school. And I used to say, you know, you might end up going into IT, and he really poo-pooed the idea. But now he's a senior reliability engineer at Google working on all this heavy-duty back-end database stuff, and I just have to chuckle because I knew all along that that was probably where he was headed. So see you. Yes. You also are an I, enabling. Mother, I know another pushing mother the future of I your know. children. Yeah, all these. We need more computer tiger moms. That's probably what we need. Yeah, I
1: think it would be a great conversation on
0: Mother's Day. Yes, you know,
1: computer <laughs> pioneering mothers making their children successful,
0: yes, which is coming up just a few weeks from now. So, but anyway, we are at the top of the hour. So this has been so delightful. But I have to say goodbye to you now. So thank you so much, Clara, for. Taking part in the conversation today, I uh, think we got to hit on all of the topics that we discussed, and I hope I didn't. I hope I didn't skate you too far outside your comfort zone with the Zuckerberg stuff, but that is pretty <laughs> fascinating these days. So I will uh, wrap up, thanks very much to our audience for sticking here with us. Uh, We'll be back again in a few weeks with another version of CIO Leadership Live, and we really thank, and it's been a great pleasure talking today with Clara Yelenkova from Rice University. And I encourage you, if you just joined us at the last few minutes of this, we will have this posted tomorrow to our Twitter feed, uh, and also on... What are the other? Let me see. We are also on iTunes, on SoundCloud. You can hear an audio podcast of this. And it will also be posted to our website on CIO.com. So thanks very much for listening, and we will see you next time.